many of us, as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds, flying through the universe at the speed of light, watching immortal enemies battling to the death. And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask Podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics. From the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork, to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colomb. Under the Mask Podcast, Episode 5. Oh! Today we have a special werewolf-themed episode. My guest today is the owner of Lone Wolf Comics. You can find him online, along with his flagship title, Nightwolf, at LoneWolfComics.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Moltari. Uh, hey, Rob, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Rob. So you're the uh, creator of uh, Nightwolf and uh, the CEO, president of Lone Wolf Comics. Why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got started with Nightwolf? Yeah, so um, I've been kind of toying around like you know, since I was a kid. Um, I think junior high was when I was really into like drawing characters and trying to write stories. Um, at the time, I was doing mostly like Marvel X-Men fan fiction kind of stuff that eventually it kind of morphed into doing it for myself. So I've been actually working on Nightwolf, I think, since I was a junior in high school and the story kind of grew up with me like as I got older and got more experienced um, you know my writing improved as well and you know it's just one of those things that fine-tuned it over the years and then you know one day like in like around 2013 I found an artist who I really loved his work and he did great with like werewolf drawings and um, we hit it off right away he did a bunch of character designs for me um, you know we started working on the first couple pages and then we're talking about doing a Kickstarter then he he got a little bit busy with his full-time job, so he wasn't able to continue on. So I had to look for another artist, which I luckily did shortly after. And then we worked towards getting the book done as I was run, running my first Kickstarter. But I kind of played the game on hard and went for like a 20000 goal. <laughs> And uh, so I was able to get past 5,000. And if I would have just been going for a single issue, I at 5,000, I would have been fine. But um, again, I was shooting for the stars, trying to get the first three issues funded right away. But that, you know, it didn't fund, but it didn't stop me. So it took me about a year to recover from that. Um, but I had the first issue done. I didn't have it printed. So I... Um, I'm also a freelance web and graphic designer. So I did a couple of jobs to basically pay for the printing. And I thought, hey, you know what? If I'm 
going to do it. I'm going to put up a shut up. So I printed the first uh, issue myself and I started going to Comic Cons. My first one was the Steel City Con in uh, Monroeville outside of Pittsburgh. And from there, like, you know, people were eating it up. So it was like, hey, you know, this I've actually got something here. So I'm just going to keep running with it. Yeah, and uh, for that first one, uh, you said you set a $20,000 goal, uh, but you had raised five or 6000 Yeah, it was, uh, I think the $5,074, I think was the, was what I had raised. But again, you know, Kickstarter being all or nothing, you know, like I said, if I would have just set for that $5,000 goal, I would have been all right just uh, in that first time around. But but even so, raising $5,000 on your first launch, I mean, that's huge. So you must yeah. know, hey, I've got something here. Exactly, exactly. And I, um, and I believe in my story too. It's not, I'm not just saying that because it's my story, but like I, you know, as a fan, I'm enjoying it too. And, uh, you know, so I knew that there was something there. People were already, you know, drawn towards it, despite the fact that I went too high. So uh, yeah, I just had to keep putting it out. So then, you know, issue two came out and did the same, basically did the same thing. And, you know, they just kept going to comic cons and kind of spreading out farther and farther. And then, uh, you know, issue three came around and I decided to give the Kickstarter another go. I figured, Hey, if I raised 5,000 the first time, why not aim for that this time? And, you know, I already have two books done and three was ready to go. It just needed printed. So, and luckily at that time, when we finished this second time around it, we ended up over 7,000. So it was way over uh, goal, which was awesome because, you know, that helped get some extra um, stretch goals in there and some extra tchotchkes for everybody and, and some more printing and put us in a lot better place. <laughs> so uh, tell us about your series, Nightwolf. So Nightwolf is a story about a young man who finds out that he is born a werewolf and gets thrown into a supernatural war against other supernatural creatures like vampires, werewolves, you know, witches, demons. Hey, so Rob, why werewolves? I think of all the like universal and like horror monsters, I think werewolves are up there. They're my favorite. And, you know, I like wolves, like dogs. Like I love dogs. My favorite looking dog is a Siberian Husky, which looks just like a wolf. So in general, I just like, I love how they look. I love just their sleekness. And I think at the time, like I started getting into a lot more, you know, werewolf movies and books. And I even got into werewolf, the apocalypse. It was kind of like, D and D, but for werewolf lovers. <laughs> but I think what really drived me to writing a werewolf comic book was the fact that uh, Werewolf: The Apocalypse had this awesome story, these awesome like kind of setup story that you could like then you know play with you know. But there was no finish to a story. It was like you know you're playing the story, you're making it up as you go, kind of a situation like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you're rolling the dice basically. So I always wanted like something like that in a comic book form a story form. So I figured, well, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> well, there you go. How did you go about finding the art teams for this? So I do a lot of my art prospecting through deviantart.com, which is where I found the first guy. Uh, so then I found my second uh, illustrator, Oscar, uh, who runs Bakuman Studios. So he took over for a while on the illustration. And then I had Ross A. Campbell, I found. He did the rest of the coloring for issue one. Um, he was was going to do issue two, but then he got picked up by DC. So I, you know, I couldn't really complain, right? You know, <laughs> so I found another guy that I followed on DeviantArt, Gat Melvin. I think he does stuff through Big Dog Inc. I think Tom Hutchison is his 
That's his company. So yeah, he he did uh, the colors for issue three, and uh, Bakiman did uh, the the artwork or the illustration for three. But so four actually, we're kind of going around back to the beginning. Where um, so my original artist is coming back now for issue four, which is uh, I'm so happy to have him back. And um, he's but he's only doing the illustration, and I'm Gat Gat's going to do the coloring still, which is great. Either way, I mean the art is just. Uh, phenomenal the stuff that he's been putting out it's so so awesome to have him back (laughs) how bittersweet is that that your artist gets picked up by dc so it stinks that hey you you lose your artist but you had good taste because the big boys were shopping for him right yeah exactly um you know with ross like his coloring was it was amazing that was um you know again it it was very bittersweet i was happy for him i was sad to lose him but again it was like one of those things it's like you know what you know i can't knock a guy for getting you know that's the dream job right you know getting with the big two (laughs) and i saw that uh you had some preview pages that you posted up on facebook Facebook, on Twitter, and I saw these preview pages for issue four. They look phenomenal. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I, I can't get enough of them myself. I mean, I even, uh, I had recently sent out to my email list just saying how much I can't express myself, how much I think this art's just, it's so good. And some of the things that he's doing, there's a period in the book where Snowpaw, my female werewolf, is talking to Nightwolf about how their breed of werewolf started. And it's kind of like the way he's drawing the pages are kind of like ancient textile looking, you know, like really detailed, really um, heavily shaded. And it just, the colors are going to be making it look like it's on like some kind of an ancient parchment kind of look and feel, which yeah, that artwork has been crazy good as well as the regular line art that he's been doing for the main story. Now you have the uh, first three issues are totally done. Uh, They're already printed and you can pick those up now at uh, lonewolfcomics.com. That's correct. Uh, uh, What are your future plans for the series or any spinoffs? So, yeah, I am. Um, I'm going to continue on with the the series as it is. Um, I have 12 issues written for this story arc, and then it's going to, you know, that's basically my first season, if you will. But I also have a spinoff planned for Snowpaw. I'm going to actually do an origin story on her. She's actually a couple hundred years older than Nightwolf, and uh, her story starts in 19th century Scottish Highlands. So um, I'm going to be taking that into a kind of opening up a little bit more of the supernatural and and fantasy world part of my universe. Uh, The idea with Snowpaw is that it's kind of since it's in the 19th century during like the industrial age, it's going to be kind of a mixture between like a steampunk and fantasy meets supernatural. And I kind of, I wanted, uh, you know, her to be a very strong character something that uh, young girls getting into comics or even girls who are already into comics can kind of look up to kind of like Wonder Woman. Um, you know, I want her to be like, you know, she doesn't need help. You know, she is a strong female character that can do things on her own and make her way through. You know, and that's one thing that I've noticed talking to uh, creators as I'm doing this show, it's very good that you're staying with the same, uh, you have 12 issues mapped out. So you're staying with the same IP, uh, the same intellectual property. You have the plans that, Hey, when you expand, it's actually going to be in the same universe. Yeah. So, um, pretty much all of my characters that I have titles for, um, including Crimson Dawn, Redemption and Arcane, those other titles all actually live within a shared universe. They actually make an appearance in my issue two of Nightwolf, just a brief cameo, just to kind of establish that that's a shared world. 
I always loved how Marvel and DC did that with their characters. That was one of my favorite things. You know, I get so excited when there's a crossover. Uh, and I think a lot of other people do too. And I think that's why, you know, DC and Marvel both kind of overdid the large crossovers for so long. You know, and I, But I think if it's done tastefully and not as often, but enough that you get that spark, that excitement, I, I think that it works better paced, if you will. Now, let's switch gears here. Uh, let me ask you, doing this, what was the best moment that you had? There's actually been a couple moments um, and they're very related to each other. One at a Comic-Con where a couple of parents actually bought the comic for their, like I had to say he was probably like 10, 11-ish, like around their preteen, you know, and that was his first ever comic. And that was, you know, like seeing that, like being like that kid's first introduction into our business was, it's just like, you know, it was a great feeling. I, you know, I remember that feeling myself when I was a kid. And then a similar situation happened after my Kickstarter, um, one of the parents um, sent me a picture of their son holding the book saying, hey, this is his, like, I'm getting back into collecting and he, this is his start of his collection, you know, and it's all because of you. So being that kind of like inspiration to like collect or start collecting or even to re, you know, to re-up your collection, that's like amazing that people, you know, feel that strongly about my story that they want to like kind of reinvigorate, reinvigorate, you know, their, um, their love for comics. You know, I still remember uh, pick the very first comic that I picked up off the rack just by myself and I paid for it with my own money. And I just remember thinking, man, this is really cool. And just reading it over and over again. Right. Uh, so it's great seeing it go on to the next generation. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, my first uh, comics, I remember. So kind of give you a little more backstory for me. I have an attention deficit disorder and I'm dyslexic, which is ironic for a writer. I know. <laughs> comic books were the way that my mom helped me learn how to read. So my, the first comics I ever picked up, it was that it was um, the legends of the uh, Batman or his legends of the dark Knight, or something along those lines. Um, they came with a cassette. Um, so it kind of helped me kind of jump into so I could, you know, hear the words as well as start reading them. And then from there, like, you know, the pictures, you know, so every week if I did my homework, if I tried hard, my mom would let me go to the comic shop and pick up three books. And at the time, you know, I was, I I got into like Hall, Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men. Looking at the pictures and reading the words within context helped me to understand what these words were and then kind of made them more recognizable and, and helped me through that. So it's, you know, it was just one trick for me to learn how to cope with it. And it's been love ever since. <laughs> Um, having attention deficit disorder and being dyslexic, uh, how has that affected you uh, as a writer? I got to say that my spelling is atrocious. That's one thing that's been really hard is, you know, as I'm writing, it may make sense to me as far as what the words are. Um, you know, I, I have to rely heavily on my editor. And also before I even send it off to my editor, my wife will proof it for me. I think, again, it's script writing isn't like writing a novel. You know, I don't have to be specifically, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like the panels, it's basically it's as descriptive as I can get it for the artist. It's the dialogue where I, I write it towards like how I think people are speaking, especially towards a character. So a lot of it's already kind of messed up English, if you will. <laughs> 
So I think that's that's been my saving grace. Yeah, and a nice thing about comic scripts, unless you're Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, or you know Jeff Johns, <laughs> right? The general public's not reading the comic script. The comic script is for the artist and the creative team. Yeah, and I think that's why my current uh, artist Carlos and um, and even Oscar uh, Bakiman Studios, they they were South American. So I think the fact that I was already writing in broken English and the fact that they speak broken English, <laughs> I think that kind of I don't know if it helped or not, but I mean, it works for us. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of creatives down there in Brazil and just down in South America. Yeah, they they are really into comics. They have this this odd style that I think is gorgeous too. A lot of them, and I think that's why both Carlos and Oscar art attracted me is because it was kind of like this nice blend between anime and and American uh, art. And so I think it kind of gave it its own feel and kind of cross boundaries because you have people who are like, oh, this is amazing. It reminds me of, you know, anime. Oh, this is amazing. Uh, you know, reminds me of Western. You know what I mean? It's like that. I think it's that nice bridging gap. And so we talked about uh, your greatest moment that you've had, but what was your biggest difficulty uh, just making Nightwolf? Basically, my biggest difficulty is always time. Finding time, you know, I have a full-time job. I have a family. Um, you know, even when I first started working on it when I was in high school, you know, like I was very active in everything. Like I was into sports. I was also into theater. I was also into choir, you know, art. Like I did everything. And, you know, and then even going into college, same difference. Like I was very busy. And I, that's, I think, how I work, too, is like whenever I find a minute or if I find time, I just, you know, I, I don't schedule it. I just if I have it, I use it. And I think I work better that way because it's more pressurized. I work better under pressure. But again, it's time has always been my biggest nemesis, if you will. Uh, do you ever find yourself procrastinating or you do, do you do more of a uh, like the 10 minute rule? Hey, if it's going to take 10 minutes or less, just do it. Yeah, I don't have the time to procrastinate. I, I think like unless I'm like super tired and can't think straight. I think I, I'll, I'll just like, if I have a minute, like I'll even, if I have like a notebook or if I'm sitting in the car, like I'll dictate to my phone, um, any, any chance I get or any way to do it, you know, I'm just writing it down on paper, scraps of paper. Like I have my office, if you could see my desk, it's got like notepads and sticky notes everywhere. Like my notebook is like, I don't know if anybody could read it, but me. <laughs> Uh, just to follow up quickly on that, have you ever thought about doing, uh, do you ever take digital notes uh, like on OneNote or uh, uh, Evernote, something like that? Yeah, I tried doing that on my iPad, but I think it drove me nuts. I, I think it's just easier for me to just hurry up and do whip it out with a pen or a pencil on paper if I'm like in the middle of something. I don't know. I, I'm not that great with the, the digital pads. And that makes sense, too, because a lot of times like I can leave a notepad in my car and I don't have to worry about somebody breaking in and stealing it. Uh, whereas, hey, if I got an iPad sitting there. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Uh, so what are the biggest mistakes that you see other creators making? I think in general, trying to go lowballing on art, I think, is a big thing that I see. I mean, I've seen a lot of good stories ruined by bad art just because they're trying to save a buck or because, you know, maybe they're trying to do it themselves, but they're not quite up to par um, with the quality of what people are interested in. You know, I see it a lot. You know, again, the stories are great. And I I, I think a lot of people, especially Comic-Cons and online, for that matter, I think it's better to have that eye cast 
eye-catching art to draw you in, but not only on a cover, but also inside too. You Because if you have like a really great cover, but your art inside's bad, that's also, that puts a negative taste in somebody's mouth, you know? So I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that I think I've seen. And I know, I think that's why it's taken me so long to get out four issues is because of the cost of the art. But at the same time, like I want something that I want to collect, you know what I mean? Like that's how good quality that I'm trying to put into this book. And I think that kind of, it helps sell your book itself too. Like, you know, your art and your story should complement each other. It shouldn't be one way or the other. You know what I mean? And I think that too is another thing is it's the opposite of the spectrum is that your art's amazing, but if the story can't carry it, you know, then is it, is it worth it? Uh, you know, that's a debate that I see all the time on the uh, forums that we're on and on Facebook. They say, Hey, is the artist more important than the writer? Is the writer more important? And I always like to say, you know, Hey, they're both important. They are. It's really true. It, it's true. Like if you, you know, you have a story, even if you have a great story and a great artist if they don't really if they if they don't match well together like if you let's say you have a horror story but you have like you know like kitty drawing it doesn't i mean sometimes maybe that might be cute or whatever but like in the same sense it doesn't make sense you know pushing people away i think more than drawing them in like people want to see if in that kind of genre a specific look and feel and i think the ones like the great you could tell the greats who are doing both same with a fantasy novel. You don't want like, you know, a horror artist doing fantasy either because it just doesn't work that way. Or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it, or somebody who's drawing super detailed, like, you know, action drawings for a kid's book specifically, you know, not so much a superhero, but a kid. So I think you have to have the writer who's writing the story meet with the artist who connects with that same story. It's and they both have to be on the same level. You want, you want the art to be consistent with the writing and the, uh, the cover art to be consistent with the interior art. Cause I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen some beautiful cover art and then you open it up and it's like, man, you see that all that budget went to the cover. Right. I select artists who also, I think speak to my book as well. Like for example, Chris Williams did a, a gorgeous variant cover for my issue one for Keystone Comic-Con last year. And he's also a werewolf uh, writer slash um, artist. So I knew he would do good for my genre, for my book. And, you know, it was, it came out gorgeously. And, but it was also, you know, when you open the book, you're, you find, you open up the same great art just by a different, you know, artist. Are there any other mistakes that you see young up and comers making? I think I've seen a lot making the same mistakes I did going for a high goal on Kickstarter when they really should be more focusing on starting low and building their audience. So that's definitely one that I do see often. And again, they learn that same thing that I do. The young starting artists, they have that idea that they think they're like, oh yeah, my stuff's so good. I can go for 20,000 and have my entire graphic novel funded without having to do a floppy. <laughs> Uh, so we've gone over your mistakes, uh, but what was the best advice that you got or the best advice that you have to give? Going to your first Comic-Con, I wouldn't shoot for one of the really big ones and I wouldn't go for one of the really small ones. I'd say probably in the middle level and make sure like if you have one book out, if you have a floppy, which I hate that word. Let me go back to saying a single issue comic book, because that is what it is. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so if you have a single issue comic book and you were trying to put out there, make sure you have character designs, you like 8x10 prints or 11x17 posters, cover art, anything you can put out to fill your table, catch somebody's eye. 
the more professional you look when you are going into this and the more you have on your table, the more people will come to you where you can start throwing in your pitch and make sure you do have a pitch. If you don't have a pitch and somebody asks you about your book, you're already lost that sale. Make sure you have enough to fill a table, have a plan, talk about your book, have a good quick speech, not even not even like a long one. All you need really is like one or two sentences for a log line or something, uh, a spiel that you that you're passionate about shows that you know what you're talking about and that you can sell somebody on your idea. That's, I think, one of the best things that um, happened for me when I first did it. And it kind of, like I said, it just kept me going. Then I think it would work for others as well if you apply it properly. Yeah, and I remember meeting you at, uh, I believe it was Motor City Comic Con, yep. uh, seeing nice. you there. And yeah, you really had your pitch down. You said, hey, here's my book. Uh, here it is. And you had a nice table set up as well. Uh, what other advice do you have uh, just for doing conventions? So always have a um, some sort of a backdrop or banner or even one of those uh, pop-ups uh, that has your information. Information. You want to make sure, obviously, you want your, your logo or if you're just doing yourself, have have some kind of nice legible way of identifying you as your brand or whatever. Make sure you have your socials on it, your website if you have one. If not, I'd suggest getting one. It's never too early to start setting up that stuff and building up. Even if you can't produce these yourself, you know, look into hiring a graphic designer. You will be happy once you do. Because, uh, like I said, if you look professional, you look like you're meant to be there, more people will come and visit you than the person who's just sitting there with one book in front of them in a blank space. Yeah, I remember my uh, first couple conventions that I did, and I just had the issues one and two because I printed those at the same time. I had those, and I think I had some 11 by 17 posters I was handed out free, but it was a pretty sad setup compared to what I have. Of course, uh, it's great talking about conventions. Unfortunately, as we record this now, uh, we're going through COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So all the conventions have been canceled for the foreseeable future. Uh, do you have any other advice outside of conventions uh, that you like to uh, give out or anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah. So um, especially if you're starting out, you know, as I mentioned, if you don't have a website, get one. You can always sell through other online means, but they also take a big chunk out of your sales. But if you set up your online store through yourself one way or another, you can, you're basically making back more money that you can put back towards sales. The price of a book, you know, you're is basically half of what you're selling for as it is, unless you're, you know, doing a, like a limited print run for like a limited edition or something, you know, the, the, like if you're selling your, your single issues for $5 and you know, you're, it's like $2 or more to print per issue, you're already losing half that, that profit margin there. And then if somebody else happened to find, you know, like Amazon or one, another retailer online selling your book, they're already taking another chunk out of it. So if you want to make more money, you need to set something up for yourself. Uh, we know you can find your books at lonewolfcomics.com. Uh, where else can we find you on the net? So I'm also uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lone Wolf Comics. And I'm also um, on DeviantArt. So deviantart.com slash Lone Wolf Comics. Uh, can you give me your best how? <laughs> yeah, hold on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Ow! <laughs> hey, well, Rob, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, just chatting with me. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, drop us a line at under the mask show at gmail.com. You've been listening to the under the mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. 
If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you've found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off. Thank <laughs> you.